Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 18? If you're new with us, welcome. We, uh, we uh, just want to let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as I just said, we have uh, recently entered into chapter 18. Now, John 18 starts out with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is spending some time with his father in prayer before being betrayed by Judas, arrested, and brought and put on trial. And I have broken down the first 12 verses into two parts, uh, Jesus' agony in the garden and then Jesus' arrest in the garden. Uh, John skips over that first part because he doesn't really get into Jesus praying three times to his father that the cup would pass from him. We see in Luke's gospel, um, in chapter 22, starting in verse 42, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, Jesus' agony in the garden, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So we studied all of that uh, over the last couple of weeks. And so now that brings us to our second main point, Jesus' arrest in the garden, uh, which was precipitated, first of all, by Jesus being betrayed by a friend. Let's look at the first three verses of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. This is when he had spoken the words of chapter 17. He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Now turn over to Matthew 26, because we spent a lot of time in Matthew over the last couple of weeks, because Matthew covers some things John does not. So Matthew 26, starting with verse 45. <clears throat> Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? This is the third time he prayed to the Father, uh, if it be possible that the cup would pass from him. He comes back and finds his guys asleep. Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of, uh, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then Luke adds that Jesus then said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, guys, let me just stop for a moment and talk about betrayal, because that's what we see here. All right. Betrayal is one of the most, I think, difficult and painful experiences that a person can go through. And the reason for that is because betrayal implies a level of trust and intimacy that few relationships ever reach. 
like the relationship that a husband and wife have in marriage, which is one of the reasons why divorce is so painful. You know each other's secrets. And if one is inclined, they could share those secrets. I've heard one couple, not Christian couple, I was just reading this, and she took to Twitter and Facebook and really drug her husband, they were going through a divorce, through the mud. Real brutal stuff. And um, if a person who knows you on that level of intimacy where you have shared your heart and all, if they want to betray you, they can do that, and that can really hurt. Uh, but betrayal isn't limited to marriage relationships. It can happen also with family and even with close friends. And I'm thinking uh, usually best friends, and that's because betrayal, again, can only happen when somebody... Uh, you have confided in, put your trust in, you know, shared your deepest thoughts with, turns on you and begins to use that information against you in some way. Again, betrayal can't happen among acquaintances like co-workers or casual friends because those relationships seldom reach a level of trust and intimacy necessary uh, for a person to feel safe enough to, uh, you know, share their deepest hurts and feelings with a person in that kind of a superficial relationship, right? Um, I mean, most people, I think, are very guarded today uh, because of things like the Internet and how much if a person wanted to, they can really get you out there and, and, and rake you over the coal to thousands of people, right? So I think most people today usually limit what they share with others so as not to make themselves susceptible to betrayal, and the pain that comes with it, especially if you have gone through a divorce and you have been hurt. Um, a lot of people just want to stay to themselves, um, opting rather to keep relationships on more of a superficial level. But there are exceptions. I think deep down within us, we all need to connect with somebody on a deeper level. I would encourage you to connect with God, first and foremost, on that deepest level, okay? Um, but, you know, if you're not married, you're divorced, and you are guarded, but there's still part of you that wants to open up to somebody because we have a need to kind of bear our hearts at times uh, with people. But, so, I mean, so there are times when there are exceptions, and we will open ourselves up uh, to someone enough um, for them to know what we're going through uh, on a kind of a deeper level, our struggles, our fears our hearts, and that makes us vulnerable and a potential target for betrayal. Now, understand, one of, the, one of the reasons betrayal is so painful is because it's unexpected. I mean, if you expected it, you wouldn't share with a person your deepest secrets and hurts and things like that, right? You feel you can trust this person. That's why you do open up, because they're a close friend or a spouse or something like that. But... Um, one of the reasons that betrayal is so painful is because it's unexpected. In other words, it takes a person by surprise who would never have guessed that their own spouse or a dear friend and confidant would ever turn on them and betray them. Now, the first time Jesus dropped this bombshell that one of his disciples would betray him was back in chapter 13. So turn back there if you would. Remember now, this is in the upper room. The night is just beginning. 
where Jesus and his disciples are going to observe the Passover together. And so he starts teaching them. Actually, he starts revealing some things to them. So John 13, verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So he's talking about how that his guys... Um, are saved and that you know that he has a very intimate relationship with them but not all of them he wants to make that clear okay i don't speak concerning all of you that things are great wonderful you're close to me you know you're truly my disciple and so on um because then he mentions you know there is one that he then he says uh, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The reason Jesus said what he said in verse 18 was because, listen, he didn't want his disciples to think that Judas' betrayal took him by surprise. In fact, at the end of verse 18, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9, and tells us that it was ultimately a prophecy about Judas betraying him. Psalm 41, verse 9 reads, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate bread, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now the context is that David wrote that those words in Psalm 41. Because one of his dear closest friends and confidants, Ahithophel, when Absalom, David's son, rose up in rebellion against his father, Ahithophel sided with Absalom. And that just crushed David. It just broke his heart. Because you have to understand, um, counselors in those days that counseled kings, um, they were very close uh, to the king. And, and David thought that Ahithophel was one of his most trusted friends and confidants who would never betray him. And so it happened. And, um, but in John 13, Jesus is actually saying to us that that was prophetic of Jesus and Judas, ultimately. Uh, again, Jesus didn't want his disciples or anyone else down through history uh, to think that the events of that morning, is, is especially uh, a Judas' betrayal, caught him by surprise it was all foreknown by god in eternity past it was prophesied about and to prove it jesus prophesied psalm 41 verse 9 through david jesus prophesied it through david a thousand years before jesus was born on the earth that we would know we would all know that judas betrayal of jesus was in the plan of god for the redemption of mankind from the beginning. From the beginning. Now, please understand, just because God knew what Judas was going to do and incorporated Judas's free will into God's overall plan doesn't mean Judas was a patsy, a fall guy, a robot. Doesn't mean Judas was being forced by God to do anything. Judas acted uh, on his own, of his own free will, even though it fit into the plan of God, Judas was responsible. 
for what he did. Turn to Matthew 26 again. And let's start with verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Judas sought the chief priests out. They didn't come to him. He was acting on his own free will. He sought the chief priests out, verse 15, and he said to them, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver, so from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Guys, you know, for centuries, Christians have debated the reason for Judas' betrayal of Jesus. I mean, think about it. What would cause one of Jesus' closest friends, a man whom he had chosen to be one of his 12 apostles, one of his closest men? I mean, this was a man that had walked with Jesus for three and a half years had watched him minister to hurting people, watching him heal the sick, working miracles, teaching people the truths of God. What would cause Judas to turn on Jesus like this and plot to betray him by giving him over to the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, who Judas knew hated Christ and wanted to kill him? I have no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us what was motivating Judas. We have some ideas. We can make some conjecture about it. But the scriptures are silent. All I can do is offer a couple of, of the most popular suggestions posed by others. The first one being, perhaps Judas was disillusioned with the type of Messiah Jesus revealed himself to be. In essence, maybe Judas wanted a more political, militant Messiah. You have to understand that the Jewish people always believed that when Messiah showed up, he would lead them in a revolt against Rome, overthrow the Roman go government, and Messiah would establish a whole new government where he would be king of the entire earth, reigning from Jerusalem. But now, they've been following Jesus for a while, and Jesus, Jesus is teaching, love your enemies. That doesn't sound like a military general that's going to lead us in a revolt, you know. Love your enemies. Maybe this isn't the one, right? Maybe we should look for another. Um, some even suggest that Judas did this from a noble position, a noble motive. That he was impatient for Jesus to reveal himself as a powerful Messiah and thought that if he would betray him to the leadership, it would force Jesus to act. Let's get this thing on the road. Come on, Lord. I believe you're the Messiah. What are you waiting for? Maybe I need to kind of force the issue. And if I betray him and they come and arrest him, oh, then Jesus is going to throw off the shackles of complacency and he's going to really lead us then. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever the specific reason, the words of Judas stand and no doubt will haunt him for all eternity. What are you willing to give me? if I deliver him to you. Guys, that was also prophesied, this time five centuries earlier through the prophet Zechariah. I'll read it to you, Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. 
the price of betrayal. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that pricely, princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. We know that later Judas brought the money back. We know he betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver, but later he brought the money back and he said to the Jewish leadership, I can't keep it, I have betrayed innocent blood. And the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees said to him, tough luck, that's your problem. Maybe not in those exact words, but that was the gist of it. And so Judas threw the money down on the floor of the temple, went out and hanged himself. This caused the chief priests to say among themselves, what do we do now? We can't put this money back in the temple treasury. It's blood money. We use it to buy information that led to the death of a man. We can't put it back in the temple treasury. What are we going to do with it? One of them said, why don't we use it to buy a potter's field to bury the dead in? See, that was always a problem back then. You always had your indigent people, those that were, you know, had no money at all. And they, they, their families were gone or whatever. They didn't have the money to buy themselves a burial plot. So when they died, what does uh, the city fathers do? Well, they were always looking for cheap pieces of land to buy to use to bury the, the poor in. And a potter's field was ideal. What was a potter's field? Well, uh, very simply, it was a field next to a potter's house. Okay, And as the potter would make uh, whatever he was making, uh, these pieces of pottery wouldn't survive the firing process. Maybe they cracked or they outright broke. And so they just tossed them outside into the field right next to their house. Well, eventually these fields got so full of little shards and pieces of broken pottery, they became useless for anything. You couldn't farm them. So what, what did you do with them? Well, municipalities realized that they make a great place to bury the poor. So because it was cheap land, and so they would buy it, bury the poor there. Thus the phrase potter's field uh, became a term for a graveyard. So first of all, Jesus is betrayed by his friend. Secondly, we see Jesus is arrested by his enemies. Again, John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now remember, Judas had left the upper room earlier in the evening, just before Jesus had instituted communion. He left to carry out his betrayal of Christ. And he went to possibly the, uh, some of the uh, secular authorities, uh, got some guys from them, went to the uh, religious authorities, and uh, he winds up with two groups. Two groups that would uh, eventually carry out the physical arrest of Jesus. We read in John's Gospel that uh, part of those that followed Judas was, a first of all, a detachment of troops. This would have been Roman troops. Roman troops. A detachment of Roman soldiers was a cohort. Cohort, the uh, Greek word is uh, spiran. It's a cohort. A, a cohort is a tenth part of a Roman legion. How much is a Roman legion? It's 6,000 guys. 6,000 guys, a tenth part of that would be 600 soldiers. That just Rome sent with Judas. All right. 
but also he had with him officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. These officers, no doubt, were members of the temple police force. You can check John 7, verse 32. We see them mentioned there. But these temple police evidently made the actual arrest. Why do we think that? Because Jesus was taken first to the Jewish authorities and not to the Roman governor. So, you know, um, they tried to handle this in-house, in a sense, uh, where, you know, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, um, sent temple police, but also Rome backed them up with 600 um, soldiers. Uh, so it was a big crowd. Uh, a pretty big number. Um, Luke adds that some of the chief priests were actually present. Uh, check out Luke 22, verses 52 and 3. Some of the chief priests were actually there, no doubt, to supervise the temple police to make sure nothing happened, no glitches. Remember in John 7, when they sent the temple police to arrest Jesus, uh, he was teaching somewhere in the temple area. Remember, they came back empty-handed. And the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees said, Where is he? Oh, no man ever spoke like this man. <laughs> they started listening to teaching and got so caught up in how well you're listening to God teach the word of God. That has to be pretty incredible. But they were so caught up in, in his teaching, they forgot to arrest him. <laughs> the chief priest this time go, we're not taking any chances. We're going with him. That kind of thing, right? Um but no doubt both Roman soldiers and temple officers were working together and were probably no doubt commanded to pick up this dangerous insurrectionist who lives in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, who lives just outside of Jerusalem. Pick up this dangerous insurrectionist known as Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be some kind of king. He's a danger. Go get him. We read how they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, the lanterns and torches were odd, seeing that it was Passover time. Passover, according to Jewish law, has to always take place at the time of the full moon. So there was light. Uh, you've ever been out when it's a clear night, a full moon? There's a lot of light, enough to arrest somebody. So why would they need the uh, torches and lanterns? Apparently, they thought they were going to have to beat the bushes to find Jesus who would be hiding from them like a common criminal. And hence the need for weapons because common criminals often resist arrest. So we gotta have weapons to beat him into submission if he should fight. This was the concept they had of our Lord. When Judas was given this group of soldiers and temple police to go and arrest Jesus, he no doubt went back to the upper room believing that Jesus and his disciples were still there. We know at the last verse of John 14, Jesus said, let us arise and go from here. So they left the upper room at that point, right? But uh, Judas had already left the upper room before Jesus had said that. So Judas figured that uh, they were still in the upper room. That's where he led the troops to arrest Jesus. And when he saw that they were gone, he figured out, the, well, the next likely place that they're going to be would be the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why John tells us in verse 2, Judas knew of that place. He knew it well since Jesus had spent a great deal of time with his disciples there, praying or just spending some quality time with them after a long day of ministry in Jerusalem. 
it was a it was a common place they would go to uh, after a long day of ministry and so again verse uh let's pick it up verse 2 john 18 so judas is betraying him he receives a detachment of troops and officers uh, they come with lanterns torches and weapons verse 4 Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Let these other disciples go. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those things you gave me, I have lost none. Now guys, what I want you to see here, and I want you to see it clearly. Jesus was in full control. He's barking out orders. The Greek is he's giving commands. He was not taken by surprise. He was definitely not a victim of circumstances. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. We know this from chapter 13, verses 1, 3, and 11, chapter 16, verse 19, and now in chapter 18, verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ was not taken by surprise. He understood completely what was going to happen to him that morning and was submitting to it. Uh, but apparently Judas expected some kind of deception. Maybe that Jesus was going to put on one of those funny glasses with the big nose and mustache disguises. Yeah, I don't know. Now we know the temple police, they knew who Jesus was because he was all the time teaching in the temple. It was the 600 other Roman soldiers. Who knows where they pulled these guys from? And many of them were probably... Uh, from out of town, maybe they had just arrived to do their stint. Uh, you know, uh, they they had uh, assignments, right? Um, and so many of them probably didn't even know who Jesus Christ was. Who we gotta get? Jesus, of what? What's he? What's he accused of? Oh, he claims to be a king. Oh, okay. Well, he's a nut job. Let's go get him. But they don't know who he was, right? Um, so Judas decides he's gonna tell everybody. Look. The guy that I walk up and kiss, he's the guy. Arrest him, right? A kiss of betrayal. But Jesus shocked, Jesus shocked both Judas and the arresting officers by boldly presenting himself to them without a fight. They were shocked. He wasn't in the bushes. He wasn't resisting arrest. He saw them coming. He stood, he stood up. He walked towards them and basically surrendered to them. I mean, he had nothing to hide. He, had nothing, he was not afraid of anything. He was a willing sacrifice, John 10. Nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. Furthermore, by surrendering to the Roman soldiers and temple police, Jesus actually helped to protect his disciples. By twice asking the question, Whom are you seeking? Verses 4 and 7. To which they replied, Jesus of Nazareth, verse 5 and verse 7. Jesus was forcing them, listen, he was forcing them to acknowledge that they had no arrest warrant. They had no authority to arrest anybody but Jesus. 
His disciples were not under that warrant or that arrest notice, right? And in fact, in verse 8, he demanded, I'm your guy, you let these go, his disciples. Well, something interesting happened the first time Jesus answered their question. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now liberal commentators say, well, they were just too close to each other, and one backed up, and they all fell down because they tripped each other. These were highly trained Roman soldiers and temple police. We've got a couple of cops in the room here, and I'm sure that they were trained because they're professionals when they had to do kind of crowd control or arrest a dangerous person. They didn't all bunch together shoulder to shoulder and walk up as a group. They spread out a little bit because they knew that the person could run for it or fight against them, you know. So, you know, and by the way, John makes it a point to say um, that along with this group, the one who betrayed him, Judas, also stood with him, which means he also fell with them. He also fell with them. Guys, listen, and we've talked about this uh, throughout John's gospel at different points, but Jesus didn't really say, I am he. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. He didn't actually say that. What he actually said was, I am. The he was added by the, it doesn't appear in the original Greek, it was added by the translators in part for clarity, but in part because English demands the word, okay? What Jesus actually was, I am. Now, in the Greek language, that's okay. But in English, the he is required, but if you notice in your Bibles, it's in italics which is an indication that does not appear in the original Greek. By saying, I am, Jesus was not only answering their question that he was Jesus of Nazareth, of course he was, but he was declaring, listen, his divinity as well. That he was, and of course is, Yahweh. The almighty God of the universe, the creator of all things. Well, didn't John open his gospel to tell us that in John 1, verses 1 to 3? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and nothing was made, and nothing was made without him making it. He's God. And here he makes that very clear. He calls himself by the name of God. The phrase I am is the name of God, first expressed in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when God said to Moses, I'm going to send you to the Jewish people to tell them I've raised you up as deliverer, to send you to Pharaoh, to tell them to let my people go. And Moses said, well, Lord, you want me to send, you're going to send me to the leaders of our people, but who should I tell them is sending me? I don't even know your name. And he, God says to Moses, you tell him, 
I am is sending you. That was the first time that God revealed himself as the great I am. And by the way, he is the great I am. Not the great I was or the great I will be. The very name of God implies the eternal nature of God. That God lives in the eternal present tense. There is no past tense or future tense to God. Everything is going on in front of God right now. The Garden of Eden, he sees Adam and Eve uh, committing original sin. And then he sees the culmination where Jesus comes back and establishes the kingdom. He sees it all happening right now. He says, how is that possible? I don't know. But time is a physical dimension. And so God, being outside of time, can see all of time in front of him. He's God, right? But it, as he declared himself to be the great I am, <laughs> I love that. I mean, I just, I, I, I just warms my heart to see the enemies of God trying to arrest God against his will. I don't think so. Jesus is submitting to everything because it's all in the plan of God for our redemption. But when he declared himself to be the great I am, the soldiers were knocked backwards and fell to the ground like bowling pins by the word of his power. The same word that created everything and that holds it together and that is going to be used, Revelation chapter 19, to destroy all the armies and enemies of God, the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, which is just a symbol for the word of God. He knocks these guys over like bowling pins. A further evidence that Jesus was in complete control of the situation, he was no victim. Well, verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am, I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now we looked at that more fully in John 17, verse 12, which reads, while I was with them, talking to his father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, Judas, that the scripture may be fulfilled. We tried to stress when we looked at verse 12 of John 17, how that Jesus Christ is holding us. He is holding on to us. We are not holding on to him, as some teach. And if you can hold on strong enough and long enough, You'll make it. But if you're weak and your grip you know, gives up, gives out, and you go back to the old life, well, you're lost. But the Bible says, once I gave my life to Christ, and he gave me eternal life, and he came to live inside of me. John 10, I'm holding you in my hand. Nobody is going to pluck you out of my hand. My father, who is greater than me, has also got you in his hand. And no one can pluck you out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Jesus is holding on to us. I love Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And I see that in part to mean 
from stumbling and falling out of Christ and being lost because of your unfaithfulness, as if my salvation depended on my faithfulness. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to be faithful. I'm just saying our salvation depends on his faithfulness to save us, to hold on to us, and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, which Jude 24 goes on to say. All right, let's wrap it up. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Here's the guy asleep at the prayer meeting, and now he's wielding a sword. Um, too many Christians are asleep at the prayer meeting and then get all jacked up and start doing things in the flesh and hurting a lot of people instead of seeking God about what God wants them to be doing uh, in ministry. But uh, Peter woke up, drew his sword, and I pro- he was probably aiming for the guy's head. So he's a lousy swordsman. They only got him, thank God, only caught him at the ear and cut the ear off. Now, the other Gospels tell us Jesus, after he rebukes Peter, stoops down, picks the ear up. I don't know if he <laughs> was dirty, stuck it back on his head, and he was healed. But uh, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into, into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the, the, the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Both Matthew and Mark tell us, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So Jesus is betrayed by his friend. Jesus is arrested by his enemies. And finally, Jesus is forsaken by his disciples. We read how that ten of the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. Simon Peter followed at a distance and wound up denying his Lord three times. And Judas used his relationship with Jesus to betray him. So the disciples forsook him, Peter denied him, Judas betrayed him. The only thing we don't read is how any of his followers, listen, stood with him. What group do you think you'd belong to if the authorities came to our church, if Christianity was outlawed and we went underground, and the authorities came to our church to arrest Christians, where would you stand? I stand with Jesus. James and John, who wanted to sit one at Jesus' right hand, the other at his left hand? Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I myself am going to drink from? Oh, we're able. Too many of us shoot our mouths off without really thinking about where we are with the Lord. What side would we be on? Would we stand with Christ? Or would we basically back up, I don't know the man? When Russia went communist many years ago, the church went underground. And at one point, there was an, it became illegal to be a Christian. Russian soldiers were rounding up Christians, putting them in the gulag and things like that. And so there's this little group of Christians meeting in a basement somewhere. True story. When suddenly the doors burst open and two Russian soldiers with AK-47s burst in the room. And they said, 
Any who are not Christians, followers of Christ, you can leave now. Go quickly. And a bunch scurried out. Then one of them walked to the doors, closed them, locked them, and the Christians said, well, in their hearts, we're going home. This is it. But as the soldiers turned around, they said, God bless you, brethren. It's good to be with true brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. We had to get rid of, we had to get rid of those that were not genuine, phony Christians. They're dangerous to have around. But these two Russians were devout followers of Christ. Now that doesn't always happen. There been many times where communist authorities have broken into a Christian gathering and just arrested everyone and took them away. What side will we be on? Now, earlier in the evening, Jesus had told them that before the night was out, they would all forsake him. Of course, they all assured him, oh, Lord, you're mistaken. Come on. You've been working hard. We know you're a little bit tired. Uh, come on. You know us. We never deny you, right? But, of course, they did. Let me just say this. Peter and the other disciples, except for Judas, of course, did love the Lord. They were just too weak at that moment to stand with him when they should have. Judas was a different story. Judas betrayed Jesus. I mean, failure and betrayal are two very different things. We can all fail to stand up for Jesus at various times because we fear the consequences. Um, you know, maybe you're a young Christian and you don't want people to think you're a Jesus freak, okay? Because uh, you don't want people making fun out of you, so you kind of Become a closet Christian. Or maybe you're afraid to declare your Christianity openly because you really want that promotion. You're afraid if the boss knows you're a Christian, an evangelical, born-again, Bible-believing Christian, he may or she may pass you over for that promotion. So you keep quiet. Or maybe if you let your classmates know if you're a student. You're afraid to do that because they'll start treating you like a social leper. And peer pressure is a very powerful thing. Although, I saw a very moving picture a few years ago. There is something called See You at the Pole. Comes every, every year. This year it's Wednesday, September 28th. Where high schoolers, and I think middle schoolers too, will gather around the flagpole at noon, lunchtime, I think, or maybe before school begins, uh, but they gather around the flagpole to pray. Now, you're declaring your Christianity. If you're a student and you're around the flagpole, you're out in the open, everyone knows you're a Christian. So a lot of kids won't do it, even Christian kids. But I saw a very moving picture a few years ago of a flagpole in front of a school and a lone middle schooler was knelt down on his knees praying. I thought, wow. If a middle schooler could have that much courage, can't the rest of us? Look, we can fail Jesus and still love him. He knows our hearts. He knows that we really love him even if sometimes we're weak and prone to failure in our relationship with him. But guys, how much better to be so in love with him that we stand for him, 
and with him so that the world can clearly see we belong to him. When we read in verse 5 that when the soldiers and temple police came to arrest Jesus and that Judas, who betrayed him, stood with his enemies, that really impacted me because the Holy Spirit made it a point to say that. That was implied, that was obvious, but the Holy Spirit chose in Holy Writ to emphasize how that Judas at that moment had stood, chosen to stand with Jesus' enemies instead of with Jesus himself. And I just want to close with this. If things get really rough in our country, and our faith is against Christianity, and our faith is tested like it's never been tested before, the time to decide if we're going to stand with Jesus or his enemies is right now. And I know, not even a question, Pastor, I'm standing with Jesus. I hope so. I do believe if your heart is, the, is there, God will give you grace. He will give you grace. He'll give all of us grace. If you're really committed to Jesus and want to do the right thing. But I think the time to decide if things get really bad and Christianity becomes a capital offense Am I going to stand with Christ or not? God, give us grace. God, give us strength. We have to determine right now, by God's grace, I am going to stand for my Lord and my Savior. And I don't care what it means, what happens to me, I'm going to stand for Jesus. And I pray we all purpose that in our heart, and by God's grace, live it out in our lives. Amen. We'll pick it up next week. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for your incredible love toward us. You stood for us. You came down and died for us. Give us grace to stand with you in these last days and to be a light in the darkness. Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.